Father, I pray that as we look at this last chapter, as all of the pieces of Ruth start to fit together and the bigger picture starts to take shape, I pray that you would fill the saints in here today with fresh courage to persevere in the face of trials and to trust that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you. I pray that you would help us as we think about this text, help us to think deeply, but help our minds connect with our hearts and help us to, uh, Lord, Lord, build our faith by your spirit through this. We pray that you would help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning with the words from a, a hymn by William Coper. We read this hymn earlier this week, and it struck me as a, as a, as a summary of what God is teaching us through the book of Ruth. The hymn is that God, God moves in a mysterious way. Listen to the words here. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Friends, that's what God is doing in the book of Ruth. He is interpreting his own actions and making it plain to us by chapter 4 what's been happening. In the course of Ruth, we've seen in Ruth chapter 1 that Naomi and Elimelech went away with their sons into exile in Moab. Because of the famine in the land of promise. And as they went away in that land, Elimelech and Malon and Chilion died and left Naomi with nothing but her two daughters-in-law. And she came back to the promised land and only one, Ruth, came back with her. And she concludes at the end of chapter 1, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. The clouds for Naomi were big and filled with threats. The providence of God looked like a frown to her at that time. The bitter bud of all of the things that happened to her was something that she did not want. And so she even said, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. We've seen through Ruth 1, 2, and 3, through the actions of Ruth and Boaz, the unfolding of God's sweet providence to Naomi. We've seen the faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz repeatedly taste sweet and bring blessing. Through Ruth and Boaz, we've seen the fullness come back to Naomi that she longed for when she came out of Moab and felt just forsaken and lost. In all of these things, we've seen that God indeed moves in a mysterious way. And so, saints, I want you and I want me, as we look at chapter 4 and see the full unfolding, uh, unfolding of this providence and the sweetness of the flower, I want us to take fresh courage. So that's my hope and my prayer for us this morning. We left off the story at the end of Ruth 
chapter 3 with this promise from Boaz. I will redeem you. There is another that's nearer than I, but if he won't act, I will. And he gave this deposit, this down payment of these six measures of barley, saying, here's blessing and here's promise and there's more to come. And then Naomi told Ruth at the end of chapter 3, right? Ruth 3.18, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle that matter today. Ruth chapter 4 could start out later today, dot, dot, dot. That's where we're picking up this story. Later in the day, we see this exchange of a weird sandal ceremony and this back and forth about who is going to redeem Ruth. And that's where I want to pick up our story and see what God has for us. We see in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, a story of two redeemers. We've got Boaz, this man who we've known all along, who's shown himself to be worthy who's acted in a way above and beyond the law towards Ruth and Naomi, widows and sojourners in the land of promise. And we've seen that Boaz is indeed a redeemer who is a near kinsman, someone able to, as a relative, come in and care for Ruth and Naomi. But now we're introduced to redeemer number two. Chapter four, verse one, Boaz has gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, when he says, turn aside, friend, this is not like, turn aside, my friend, who I'm happy to see. This is like, hi, friend. Like when you don't remember someone's name and you're kind of like, who's this guy? That, that, that's, that's what the text says. That's not what Boaz would have said. He would have known this guy's name, but the text is saying friend, not in the sense that he's a friend to Boaz, but in a sense of that we're not learning his name. So we can call him Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so is this other redeemer, and he remains unnamed in the text. But Boaz calls him to sit down and calls these witnesses in the city to come and sit down. And then he puts out this proposal in verses three and four, right? What does he say? He says to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. When he's saying that, what he's actually saying is not that Naomi had this land as as an asset and she's selling it because she needs her assets to be liquid so she has an opportunity to pay for her debts and things like that. Naomi is selling the use of the land, the ability to farm on that land so that she can live off the proceeds while the Redeemer would farm that land. With the idea that then the land during the year of Jubilee would go back to Naomi and her relatives. But here's the problem. Land goes to male relatives. Do Naomi and Ruth have any male relatives left? No. So she can't just sell this land to anyone or the land would go out of her family. Which is a big deal when you have a people that's been gathered and given a promised land as an inheritance, right? So she's trying to wrestle with, how do we solve this? So she's putting up this land for sale to a redeemer, someone who is in the family, which means that the land would stay with the family. She's selling this use. And so Boaz says, hey, you're a closer relative than I am. So I wanted to let you know about this. Verse verse 4, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And what does Mr. So-and-so say? I will redeem it. 
This seems like a good business proposition, right? I get some land. I get to use it. I get to profit off of it. What's to lose? Right? And then Boaz throws a little fly in the ointment, right? In, in verse 5, what does he say? He says in verse 5, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, for an Israelite, this would be like squealing breaks in the mind. Like, whoa, wait, wait a minute here. I, I, I'm okay with the land, and I'm okay with the profit from the land. That seems like a good business opportunity. But if I marry Ruth, the Moabite, I'm, I'm risking social capital because she's not really welcome in the land of Israel. But not only that, he says in verse 6, I can't do it lest I impair my own inheritance. In other words, marrying Ruth and having children by her in the name of Elimelech and Malon would mean that the land would go back to them instead of Mr. So-and-so. So he's, he, he's going to incur costs and incur expenses with no real profit, so to speak, of even possibly some of his own inheritance that he's already accumulated going to these offspring. So he says, no, I can't do it. The cost is too high. The cost is too high. So we read in the story that Boaz follows through on his promise then to redeem it. And we have that sandal ceremony, which is there to tell us how transactions were confirmed. And then we read Boaz does it. Why? In verse 10, or verse 9, we'll read, Boaz says to the elders, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Your witnesses to this day. Both Boaz and Mr. So-and-so intend to redeem and even state their intentions, right? Boaz says in chapter 3, I will redeem you. He says again, tell me if you'll redeem this land, because if you don't, I will. And Mr. So-and-so says, I will redeem it. But one is focused on the land and the profit that comes from it. And one is focused on Ruth and the opportunity to perpetuate offspring, to have children and to continue the name and inheritance of this family in Israel. One is willing to pay the price for that. Boaz is, right? One says the price is too high. I'm going to impair my own inheritance. Mr. So-and-so shows himself, unlike Boaz, to be self-interested and interested in his own preservation of his own inheritance and his own name. And Boaz, on the other hand, shows himself to be keyed into the interests of others, namely Ruth and Naomi. At the center of both of these concerns is the concern for an inheritance, the concern for a name, the concern for the family to continue to be provided for generation after generation, and for the family to continue to exist in the people of Israel. This was huge for the people of Israel. It might not be a strong feeling for us today, because in our culture we don't take as much stock in the continuation of a name, a family legacy. But in this culture, this people... Marked by the promise of God that your offspring will be as numerous as the stars, really cared about their family name continuing. Their family name to continue to be represented among the people of God. This was super important to them. And both of them are rightly concerned about this. 
But Mr. So-and-so is concerned about his own name, irrespective of the condition of the name of his brothers in Israel. Whereas Boaz looks and says the name of Elimelech and the name of Malan, their family name is at risk of being cut off. And I know that that matters to God. And so that matters to me. This is how Boaz responds. Mr. So-and-so, because of his self-preservation impulse, fails to do anything for the sojourner and the widow among him. Ruth and Naomi, right? He does not take care of them. And for God's people, that is a no-no. Because God had called his people, care for the sojourner, care for the widow, provide for them, even at the expense of your own inheritance. Boaz, on the other hand, selflessly loves and shows himself to be faithful to the widow and the sojourner. So we have two redeemers, but they're very different in where they're focused on. And they're very different in what they do, right? Which one comes out well? Which one works? Which one shows the hand of blessing on their response? Whose name is remembered and whose inheritance is secured? We know from the narrative of the scripture that only one is faithful to Yahweh's commands to care for the widow and sojourner, and therefore only one has his name and his inheritance preserved, right? At the beginning of chapter four, when Boaz says, come here, friend, come here, Mr. So-and-so, that's not because Boaz didn't know his name. It's because the narrator, the person recording the story of Ruth, has deliberately blotted his name out of the record. It says friend, in Hebrew, it's Poloni Almoni, which is a, a, not a name, but a fun word to say. It means such and such, or so and so. Or like the New English translation translators, I like what they say. They say, come here, what's his name? Not because they don't know his name, but because his name has been blotted out of the history of Israel. His name has been stricken from the record. Mr. So-and-so selfishly guards his own name, and ironically, his own name is forgotten. His own inheritance is destroyed. Boaz, on the other hand, verse 10, he is keying in on perpetuating the name of the dead so that it may not be cut off from Israel. He is worried about another's name for the sake of the name of Yahweh. And what happens to Boaz's name? We still know it, right? It's preserved in the text, it's still guarded. In this narrative, we see the call to ask the question whose name are we focused on? Whose kingdom are we building? Whose inheritance are we interested in? We see a warning in this text that self interest, self focus at, at the cost of loving your neighbor has no future has no hope, will not actually preserve what you hope to preserve. Whether that be your family name, whether that be your, an inheritance for your children, whether that be anything else. Self-interest at the cost of obedience to Yahweh has no future. Jesus teaches this same thing in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, a story probably familiar to many of you. Verse 21 
Jesus begins to tell his disciples about his impending death. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why is he doing that? Why is he paying that terrible price? Because he's got a people to redeem who will be cut off if he does not, right? You and I would be cut off from God eternally without a redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so what is he doing? He's saying, I know that in order to redeem this people, I have to pay this price. Just like Boaz, in order to redeem Ruth and Naomi and perpetuate their name so they will not be cut off, I have to pay this price. Jesus is describing that. And guess what Peter does? I love Peter. He's so helpful for us because he says all the wrong things and teaches us how not to respond. He says this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. The price is too high, Jesus. That's, no, no, you need to preserve your own name and your own inheritance. Not go and suffer for the sake of others. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are not concerned about obedience to Yahweh. You are concerned about preserving your own inheritance. Preserving your own name. And then Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus teaches us that though it is costly to love neighbor, though it is costly to redeem, it is worth the cost. And that we ought to, in imitation of him, not look to our own name and our own inheritance, but take up our cross and follow him. Not preserve our life, for if we preserve it, we will lose it. But give our life for the sake of following Jesus and the sake of loving his people. We're often like Mr. So-and-so, like Poloni Almoni, the guy with no name, in calculating when we go to love someone, what will this bring me? What will this profit me? What's in it for me? But Jesus calls us to pick up our cross. Jesus also enables us to do that because he promises. In 1 Peter, we read of a promise like this. 1 Peter chapter 1, we've been born again. To what? To a living hope, to an inheritance that is undefiled, kept in heaven for you and I, guarded until that last day. Jesus teaches us, and Peter, reflecting on that later in his life, says that the the redemption that Jesus brings means that you and I have an inheritance that doesn't need to be guarded and preserved, but that is secure. And that means... That we don't have to self-interestedly turn inward and focus on our own name and our own inheritance and our own hopes in this world. But that we can be free to love others sacrificially like Boaz loved Ruth and Naomi. It's a call to sacrificial love of neighbor. That's first of all what I want us to see from this text. But that's not the only thing I want us to see. Because that alone would be just a moralistic preaching of this text. Would be just a, here's a story about a good guy in Israel, be like him. Right? 
And God's word has so much more for us than that. Yes, you ought to love others sacrificially like Boaz did. But that's not the only thing. And that's not the only reason. There's a bigger story at play here. We can see it already hinted at in Ruth chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, in these blessings that the people, the elders at the gate, and all those who witness this transaction say, we are witnesses, they say. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The narrator is giving us a clue that this story of Ruth and Boaz is part of something bigger. Already bringing in Ruth and Leah, bringing in Perez, and mentioning this word offspring. Mentioning this word offspring. This moves us into the fulfillment of these promises, particularly to Naomi in the next section, verses 13 to 17. We see that Boaz takes Ruth, verse 13. She became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then the people of the city blessed Naomi. This is a beautiful picture of someone who came away from the land of Moab empty with no hope of any kind of future because there was no offspring. And there was no hope of a husband for Ruth that could provide offspring. And now we have this picture of this woman who was so broken that she said, call me bitter. And she's holding her grandchild on her lap. And the people of the city are blessing her and saying, truly, God has his hand upon Naomi and her family. This is so different from what you expect going into this story. In chapter 1, Naomi's emptiness, the famine that she experiences, the hardship, the suffering is real and painful and horrible. But we see here that it's not God's final word for Naomi. It doesn't end there. Naomi's conclusions that God's hand has gone out against me are not the final word on God's providence for Naomi. She experiences this fullness. How does this fullness come to her? How does she experience the joy of holding her grandchild as the people of the town come around and bless her? How did it happen in the story? It came about through the faithfulness of her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who said, I will go with you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I will go into the fields and glean for us so that we will have something to eat. I will go to the threshing floor and risk it all for the sake of trying to find a husband. And it comes through the faithfulness of Boaz, who saw a widow, a foreigner at that, gleaning in his fields and said, come, come up among the reapers and even grab some of the fresh produce. And here, here's food. Take it home and feed your mother-in-law. It came through the faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz together as they agreed to marry one another. And as Boaz particularly said, you know what? I'm going to marry you for the sake of perpetuating the name of the dead. For the sake of keeping Elimelech and Malon in the line of Israel. Which Naomi would have felt was so important. 
The fullness that Naomi experiences comes through the faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz. But that's not the only way that the fullness comes to Naomi. She's brought from this famine to fullness, not only through their faithfulness, but through the faithfulness of God, right? Through the faithfulness of God. Notice the mysterious way that God accomplishes his faithfulness to Naomi. We see it in verse 13. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her. And the Lord gave conception, and she bore a son. The Lord gave conception. That's one of the two times in this book that the Lord is explicitly said to act. He visits Israel in the midst of their famine and brings bread back into the land. And here he comes and visits Naomi and gives her conception. The implication of that is that Ruth's barrenness, Ruth's failure to have children thus far, was because God had withheld the blessing of offspring. Because God had withheld the blessing of children, even though it was needed and necessary. Remember, in chapter 1, verse 4, it talks about Ruth and Malan being married and living together in the land of Moab for 10 years. It's normal for married couples after 10 years, especially during this time period, to have kids, right? But they had no children. Ruth was barren. But it wasn't a barrenness. That was without purpose. It was a barrenness specifically because God had withheld conception for her. Think of all the problems that would have been solved if Ruth and Malan had had a child. When Naomi and Ruth and this little baby came back from the land of Moab, they would have had an offspring. They would have had a redeemer. They would have had someone where the future hope of Elimelech's name is preserved. A whole bunch of problems would have been solved if God would have just given Ruth children with Malan in the land of Moab. But he didn't. Why? Why didn't God give Ruth a child with Malan? It's because God was at work for a greater purpose for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. God was at work to accomplish greater purposes for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Look at what the women of the city say. They say, in verse 15, He, this child, who they call a redeemer for Naomi, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. This blessing of the people on Naomi, because of this baby, shows that this baby is accounted to be a redeemer to Naomi. Someone who will preserve and care for Naomi and Ruth as they age. And who will perpetuate the name of her dead husband, Elimelech, and her dead son, Malan. Who will perpetuate the inheritance, ensure that it stays in the family. And that her family has land in the land of promise for years and years to come. God was accomplishing this for Naomi. Not only that, but he was accomplishing for Ruth, giving her a righteous, worthy husband in Boaz, who would care well for the family, who showed himself to be a man who keeps God's covenant and who obeys sacrificially the call to love neighbor. God is accomplishing all of these things for Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. But the story doesn't end there. 
I think it's worth asking why the genealogy on the end? Why this list of names on the end? Because it seems like when we get to the end of verse 17, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It seems like this story could end there, right? uh, Naomi has this grandchild on her lap. Ruth and Boaz are happily married. Their future is secure in the land. And there's going to be offspring. There's going to be Jesse and going to be David. Why doesn't this story end there? It's because, just like God withheld conception from Ruth for the purpose of his greater purpose that he was going to accomplish for Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, he did it for a greater purpose that he was accomplishing among his people. God is accomplishing greater purposes for Israel and for the nations through this story as well. That's what the genealogy tells us. It gives us this clue. We have another clue in this text as well. We have Ruth, who's barren, without a child, in a, in a time when you needed to have kids. And you've got Boaz, who she marries, who he says, this is a blessed thing that you have done because you have not gone after younger men. So we've got Boaz, who is older, And we've got Ruth, who is barren. We've got an old man and a barren woman together looking for the promise of offspring. That should ring bells in our head when we think about the scriptures. Specifically, that should ring the bells of Abraham and Sarah, an old man and a barren woman promised offspring and waiting on that promise. And the narrator is helping us see that this pattern that the Lord did with Ruth and Boaz is part of a larger pattern in scripture and part of a larger story that connects to his purposes for Israel and his purposes for the nation. See, God is not bringing just fullness for Naomi. If the story stopped at verse 17, this story would be about God bringing fullness to Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. But God is bringing fullness to much more than that. He's accomplishing a greater purpose, first of all, for Israel. Remember that this book takes place when? In the time of the judges. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the time of the judges. Turn there with me for a second. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now look at the verse just before that in your English Bibles which should be the book of Judges, the last verse in the book of Judges. In the time of the Judges, 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, the the judgment of the book of Judges, why is it so horrible? Why is Israel just spiraling out of control into sin, into wretchedness? Because there's no king in Israel. Israel had not asked for a king yet in the days of the judges. But the problem was that there is no king in Israel. And so here is God, before Israel has even asked for a king, in the days of the judges. And we read at the end of the genealogy, verse 21, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. David, the righteous king in Israel who will come after Saul and who will meet this 
problem of no king in Israel and everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. A man who later God says is a man after his own heart. A king who is devoted to righteousness and a king who God makes a promise, I will build your house and a descendant of yours will sit on the throne of Israel forever. God is providing fullness for his people Israel who are in desperate need of a king and he's doing it through withholding offspring from Ruth, bringing bitterness to Naomi, and then through faithfulness, Bringing those guys to fullness and providing this heir, this offspring. All to bring his people Israel a king that they desperately needed. Not only that, but God is, in his greater purposes, bringing fullness through Israel to the nations. Notice what happens in this text. What does Ruth say, or excuse me, what does Boaz say about Ruth in chapter 2, verse 12? He says, the Lord repay you. For what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. How did Ruth come to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh? In chapter 1, what does she tell Naomi? I will go where you will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. A foreign woman from Moab comes and confesses faith in Yahweh, the God of gods. She takes refuge under his wings. And what happens to her? She's blessed. She's brought to fullness. What did God promise Abraham and Sarah about their child? In Genesis 12, God promises to Abraham, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. I will make your name great. Why? So that I will bless you. And that those who bless you, I will bless. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's happening here in Ruth, as Naomi, excuse me, as Ruth comes and takes refuge under the wings of Yahweh and finds blessing among God's people, is that God is saying, here, look, here is where blessing is found, coming and trusting in me, which is the call of the gospel. For all the nations, the Gentiles included, which Ruth would have been one, right? A foreigner comes and takes refuge in Yahweh and finds blessing. That is the story of the gospel, friends. God is prefiguring that in here. Giving us a story to show that. To show that all who come and take refuge in Yahweh will find blessing. That all the families of the earth will be blessed through this people. And through their descendants. Ultimately, through Christ, right? Through these descendants. This genealogy only tracks through David, but that's because the rest of the Old Testament picks up that story and shows us that it's a Davidic offspring that will be the one who we can all come and take refuge in and find blessing. This anticipates this Davidic descendant. That's not all God is doing in this text, though, either. That's enough, but that's not it. See, this text is showing us God's greater purpose to give hope to his people in the midst of exile. In our English Bibles, it's right after after Judges. And that's, that's good, that's helpful because the story takes place after Judges. But the story wasn't really written in the time of the Judges. The story of Ruth was written during the time of the exile. And in the Hebrew Bible, it's placed there in 
the order. So it comes either right before Psalms or right after Proverbs. It depends on which different manuscript you look at. It comes in there in the midst of a people in exile after the story of Israel's descent and King David and the breaking apart of the kingdoms and all of the wicked kings of the north and they're taken into exile in Assyria and then Judah is taken into exile in Babylon. After all hope is lost, then the prophets come and really lay heavily in and say, look, this is happening to you because you've sinned and forsaken Yahweh. And it's horrible and it's bleak and it doesn't look good. And then in, in the middle of that, The only narrative story in the time between the exile and the time between when the story's picked up in Daniel with with narrative, with story, is the story of Ruth. It was written to the people in the time of exile, looking back on what had happened and calling their attention to why they should have hope in the midst of exile. You see, at the beginning of the story, Naomi goes into exile in the land of Moab. What I mean by that is she leaves the promised land because of circumstances. The land of blessing, the land of hope. She leaves and she goes off into exile in Moab. Just like Israel had been removed from the land of promise by conquering kings of Assyria and Babylon. They left the promised land. They were pulled out of it. And they were longing to get back. And they were wondering, how are we going to get back? Not only that, but as they got pulled out of it, their kings got slaughtered. Their men got killed. Jehoiakim, the last king in, chronic, or in, in Kings, is put in prison. How is God going to provide an heir? How is God going to keep his promise for the line of David? In the midst of exile, and Naomi comes back out of exile from Moab and has got a problem. All the men are dead. How is God going to keep his promise that my name will not be cut off from his people? And what does he do? He... he fulfills his promise by giving offspring sovereignly, by granting conception, by the everyday faithfulness of people within the promised land. God keeps his promise to Naomi, and this shows Israel, God will keep his promise to you. Even as you wonder how this is going to work out, God will keep his promise. This book starts with death and barrenness, because that's the question that was on Israel's mind in the midst of exile. How is God going to keep his promise? And this book ends with a list of offspring, with a list of names to show that God kept his promise even way back then before you guys even knew you needed the promise. And so you can be assured that when God says, I will bring you back out of exile, I will return you to the promised land, I will keep that promise. It's a promise that God will one day provide the offspring of David who will sit on the throne of David and who will reign as king of kings and lord of lords. It's a promise that we know is fulfilled in the New Testament, right? We don't, we don't wonder about that promise anymore, but Israel sure did. And so this book ought to function for us like it did for them. How will God keep his promises? Look, this is how he keeps his promises. He will keep his promises. I think it's important for us to remember, too, that all of these greater purposes, Israel and the nations and God providing hope in the midst of exile, they're not divorced and independent from God providing fullness to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, right? The, the blessing that's, that's, that's said to them in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, and in verse 14, may your name be re- renowned, right? May your name be renowned in Bethlehem. May your name be renowned 
uh, about uh, specifically Obed. May his name be renowned among his people. What happens is that Boaz and Obed's names are recorded in the genealogy and renowned at the end of Ruth, but renowned a thousand years later when Matthew writes his gospel and lists the offspring of Christ. And there's, o, there's Obed, uh, excuse me, there's Boaz and, and there's Obed. And not only that, but they're renowned 2,000 years later as we're reading still their story. And as we're thinking about them, the one who wanted to preserve his name, who we have no idea who he is, he's cut off. He's gone. The ones who look to the names of others and serve those around them, their names are indeed preserved. Their names are remembered. The faithfulness that they exercised has great reward. And so, friends, I want us to see that both the fullness that came to Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and the the fullness God was bringing to the nations and to his people Israel, these are connected. These are together. Their story was part of a larger story. And I want us to see that because we can often think that the circumstances of our own lives have nothing to do with God's bigger story. That the circumstances of our own lives are disconnected from God's greater purposes. We can think, yeah, we know God is working to work all things for his good. And we know he's working to accomplish his purposes in the world. And we know someday Jesus is coming back. But what's going on with me right now doesn't really matter in the big picture. I'm sure Ruth and Boaz and Naomi could have thought, about, thought that way. They certainly didn't know what God was doing. But their lives were intimately connected to this story of redemption. Their lives were intimately connected to you and I because of what God was doing in and through them. If you ask them, was it worth it? How do you think they would respond? What do you think they'd say? Was all of the pain and the bitterness worth it? I think they would say yes. So friends, behold in this story how God works and remember that he is doing more than you can possibly imagine in your lives. He is doing more through the everyday mundane circumstances of your life than you could imagine. And he calls you in the midst of that to trust him that that is the case and to be faithful, right? He calls you to be faithful like Ruth and like Boaz because he is working. And he calls you to be trusting him like Naomi had to trust because he is at work. He calls you to persevere in this everyday kind of faithfulness that sacrificially loves neighbors. He calls you to remember that he was always moving in his people from famine to fullness. This is the pattern of scripture over and over, right? In the wilderness, in numbers, God's people are wandering in famine. And what is he doing? He's leading them to the promised land. To bring them into the fullness of his promises in Joshua. And then what happens? God's people are cast out of the promised land in Kings. Because of their sin and unfaithfulness. They're brought into the famine of exile. And what is God doing in the midst of exile? He's bringing them to the fullness of the return. That we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. What is he doing? He's bringing us from famine to fullness. He continues this in Christ. Bringing us from the famine of darkness to the fullness of light, like John talks about. And he's bringing us from the famine of death to the fullness of life, like we see Paul write about. 
He's doing this over and over again because ultimately what God is doing in this world is he's bringing you and I, all of his people, from the famine of the ruins of Eden, of our exile from his presence, into the fullness of the new creation, into the fullness of life with him forever. God is doing that. That's the story that's happening. And in the midst of that, saints, we are called to be faithful because that story is what we're a part of. So ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are indeed at work to bring your people from famine to fullness. You've done it over and over again. Help us to take courage from the stories like Ruth, where you peel back the curtain and we get to see what's going on. Help us to trust you in our own lives, even as the sweetness of your providence is shrouded for us. And it looks like just a frown and dark clouds. Help us to trust that you are indeed moving in a mysterious way that is beyond our understanding, but is perfect in every way, is beautiful, and is leading to fullness. Help us to trust that, Lord. Help us to live accordingly. Help us to be faithful in light of that, we pray. Lord, we long for you to come back. We long for you to bring us into that fullness of the new creation. Help us to persevere, Lord, as we wait. Amen.